Stories of Communism 49, They Never Make Mistakes. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, along with co-host Manuel Castaneda in Oregon. Since China's been in the news a lot lately, we thought it would be good to cover another Chinese story. Today we'll be looking at Anwa Gao's memoir, To the Edge of the Sky. Gao was born at about the same time Mao's communist regime took over China in 1949, and thus lived through all the major phases, crises, and upheavals of that regime until she finally managed to emigrate to the UK in the early 1990s. She grew up along with communist China and experienced many of that government's worst human rights abuses firsthand. Gao's parents both fought in Mao Zedong's revolutionary army, earning positions as senior government officials after their victory, and thus lived very well during the early days of communist China. She had a happy early childhood, was close with her sister Andong and brother Wei Guo, though her oldest sister Pei Zhen, who had been traumatized while living through the war, was always somewhat distant. Already during her childhood, it was clear that the new classless society was developing its own social classes, as Gao points out. Pei Zhen attended a weekday boarding school, which had been founded exclusively for children of officials from the East China Army Unit. She came home on Saturday afternoons and went back on Sunday evenings. There were similar schools in all the major cities of China, which ensured a good education for the children of every important communist. The party was building a new structure of privilege similar to that of the Kuomintang, thus creating an elite class exactly what they had fought to eliminate. There have to be people in charge, but when the ordinary people had so little, it was shameful that those in government took so much for themselves. At that time, I think my parents simply took what they were given without thinking about what was happening. They had lived through years of privation and probably accepted this new good life as their reward. In 1956, Mao announced that he wanted people to speak freely to let 100 flowers blossom and criticize the regime in order to improve it. This turned out to be a trick. After giving people the courage to criticize him in public, Mao soon announced that those who had done this were secret rightists who were attempting to overthrow the government and had to be punished. One day Gao saw a visitor sitting in her mother's room and crying. Even though Gao's parents had high standing, her uncle, Zhao Rusheng, was one of those labeled a rightist. He had suggested that maybe China shouldn't be copying the USSR so much. He had been an officer in the army but lost his career and was dishonorably discharged and sentenced for punishment. It would be 30 years until Gao could see him again. In the anti-rightist campaign, every work unit, including the army, was given a 5% quota. Once a person was branded a rightist, he or she was dismissed from their place of work and sent to the poorest rural area to receive reform through hard labor. The work was unpaid and thousands of kilometers away from any big city. My uncle, Zhao Rusheng, was one of the unlucky 5%. Though a senior officer felt sorry for him, he had to fulfill the quota. All the exiles had to wear black caps to denote their status as class enemies. My uncle remained single because no girl would dare to marry a rightist. He had nothing to offer, no status, no money, no prospects. Most of the married exiles lost their spouses by divorce and lost touch with their children because they were not allowed to correspond. Many killed themselves to escape their unhappiness. But the anti-rightist campaign was just a small inconvenience compared to the great leap forward Mao's set of programs which destroyed farm productivity and resulted in the starvation of millions. The leap consisted of several initiatives Mao created based on personal reading and observation and forced on the entire nation of China without anyone in the government daring to contradict him. 
For example, since it was reported that sparrows ate a small part of the annual grain harvest, Mao enlisted the whole nation, even school children like Gao, to slaughter as many sparrows as they could. But he didn't realize that these birds also helped to eat pests that would otherwise destroy far more crops than the sparrows ate. Another big initiative in the leap was the push for industrialization. Many farmers were pulled from their fields to participate, and every citizen had to contribute metal items to help manufacture steel. Gao's mother gave up their family walk, so they had to start eating in a public canteen. As a result of all this, crop yields were horrible for several years, which the government attempted to label the years of natural calamities to deflect blame. The streets began to fill with desperate beggars, telling tales of starvation and even cannibalism in the countryside. Many of Gao's distant relatives, who she'd never heard of before, showed up at their house to beg for help. Her mother gave them meals out of her own meager rations and let them stay a few days, but even this angered her grandmother, who was worried about their immediate family survival. Gao's grandfather started planting a few vegetables in the yard, successfully producing some food for the family, who were surprised that the so-called years of natural calamities weren't affecting their plot. Many others who had some land had similar ideas, and some sold their surplus production. The many who were caught were executed as saboteurs of the socialist economic order. Despite this, government propaganda continued to convince the citizens that they were living better than any other country in the world. Gao's childhood ended up being interrupted by more personal concerns, though, as her mother became ill and died after a long hospital stay. Her father had already died several years earlier. Ironically, the fact that both her parents died would benefit her immensely. Since they had been in Mao's army, she got certificates labeling both parents as revolutionary martyrs, a very high status that would not be lost, as status was for many living leaders, in Mao's purges. She and her siblings wanted to remain in their house and be raised by their grandparents, who'd been living with them already and handling most of their day-to-day -day needs while her parents worked, but China's new class system made this impossible. They had owned property before the revolution, an unforgivable sin. The children were even warned to avoid visiting their grandparents, since association with them could hurt their future careers. I couldn't understand why there had been no problem for them to live with us when mother was alive, and now they had no right to look after us. My uncle explained that, with mother in charge of the household, there had been no political difficulty. She had been a senior party official and could give us guidance. Now, without her influence, it was too dangerous for us to live with our grandparents. We were revolutionary successors and could not be allowed to live under the influence of a landlord. Gao and her siblings were taken in by several uncles. They were sent to good schools, and Gao excelled in her schoolwork as well as making some good friends. But she was swept into another of Mao's mass movements, sending children from the city to work as slaves in the countryside farms for a period of time in an effort to increase production. The conditions there were horrible. Gao was lucky that she was relatively young at this time, so only had to go for two weeks. Many of the older children were sent for years, having their lives ruined forever. The forced workers had to sleep on the floor with no bedding, worked to exhaustion, and lived in unsanitary conditions that resulted in continual diarrhea. Their main breaks were propaganda sessions, where farmers were supposed to tell them how much worse things were under pre-communist depression. But one of the farmers made a critical mistake. She was made to do all kinds of hard labor, but never had good food to eat. She had no shoes and went barefoot all year round, even in the icy winters, and she was beaten regularly by her cruel landlord. She cried as she remembered those terrible times, and her audience, including me, felt sad about her unhappy life as compared to the sweetness of our own. However, it was not long before we noticed something wrong with her report. She dwelt on the terrible hunger of 1960 to 1962, which had occurred under the communists. 
She was clearly unaware of her mistake because she was illiterate and could not distinguish between the Kuomintang and communist governments. All she knew was the hard life she had endured, and to her the old past and recent past had blurred into one. As soon as the leaders realized her mistake, they led her away from the meeting. The commune leader explained that she was too old and sad and that her mind was muddled. I don't think many of us were fooled, but as usual, nothing was said. Her short experience in the countryside motivated Gao to study even harder and try to be a top student, so she would not have to risk getting sent there for a longer term or even permanently. She would end up being sent again for other short stints of countryside labor while in school, with the conditions being just as horrible and her body getting covered with insect bites that would take months to heal. This also started her seriously questioning Mao's teachings for the first time. Nothing she saw in the farmlands matched the idyllic picture that the official propaganda had painted. A former schoolmate who was now living permanently on a farm confessed to her that she hated everything about this life and desperately wanted to go back to the city. Then in 1966, Mao's Cultural Revolution began. As you may recall, this is the period when Mao unleashed teenage and young adult mobs to attack and destroy anyone suspected of not fully supporting his form of communism or taking the capitalist road. The requirement for blind loyalty in Mao was reinforced with everyone being required to own a copy of the Little Red Book of his quotations. Students in Gao's school began putting up posters criticizing their teachers, and soon it went further. Within a few days, writing defamatory posters was no longer enough for them. The poster writers were strutting about the school, ready for mischief, and it pained me to see my own brother among them. It wasn't long before the students were in control of the school and the rabble was in charge of the students. Then the first beating occurred. It came as these things usually do from nowhere. A teacher came into school and discovered her students tearing pages out of a book from the school library. She tried to take it from them, failed, and was pushed to the floor. The students laughed, and one girl picked up a torn-out page. Eat, she shouted, and pushed the paper into the face of the teacher. Eat this. She forced the page into the mouth of the teacher, made her chew it, urged on by a few slaps across the face. Then one of the boys punched her. Punching became kicking, which progressed to a full-scale severe beating. Only the intervention of several other teachers saved her. It was expected that the students responsible for the beating would be punished, but they weren't. So more and more students wanted to settle old scores, join the gang, and every day we had to watch as one teacher after another was beaten up by the students. I dared not read English now or do any kind of study because I was a typical example of those students who had taken the white academic road. However, I wasn't attacked by other students, like so many of my classmates, because I was protected by the certificates of revolutionary martyrs. They shielded me from danger for many years. Schooling and industrial production were virtually paralyzed as different factions of Red Guards, also known as Rebels, began fighting each other in addition to preying on the public. But one other element that upset Gao is that her oldest sister, Pei Zhen, became a senior leader of one of the Guards factions, and her brother, Wei Guo, seemed to be also adopting her level of fanaticism. When Gao tried to bring her some good food she'd cooked at home, her sister scolded her for her bourgeois decadence. But Gao then faced another danger. Mao again announced that spoiled middle-class kids in the cities needed to spend time in the countryside and would be once again sent out to do farm labor, this time for an unspecified amount of time. She was terrified to be trapped as a farm slave again, and the one way to be exempted from this command was to join the army. Luckily, she had a few contacts who were still military officers and managed to get accepted as a nurse in training. Army life had its challenges, but was nowhere near as bad as the country farms had been. Grateful for this safety valve, she performed well as a soldier and a nurse, and was soon popular and well-respected among her colleagues there. Other than having to study Mao's Little Red Book and constantly attend propaganda meetings, 
Most of the worst effects of the Cultural Revolution didn't directly impact the army bases. But her unit was assigned to provide health care for some of the students in the countryside, and she observed even worse conditions than she had known. The young people who came to us all told the same story. The boys were subjected to brutal treatment by the peasant officials, and the girls were raped repeatedly by the production brigade leaders. If they resisted, they were given the worst jobs with the lowest work points. There was no joy in their lives, only terror, pain, and ill treatment. Sadly, we could do nothing to help the majority of them. We did not dare issue false certificates because there would be more tests when they returned home. Some, mostly girls, got a false certificate of disability or illness by giving their bodies and money to those who had power over them. But all too often, the leaders took the money and continued to rape them, with no intention of ever letting them go. Many young people of both sexes committed suicide, often by drowning. Others fell on sharpened sticks or hanged themselves. Of those who returned home, many were in poor health and out of their minds. Some never recovered. During her time in the army, Gal missed her family and sent lots of letters to them, including to her oldest sister, Pei-Jen, despite their strained relationship. Surprisingly, Pei-Jen seemed to want to mend fences and actually wrote back, which she hadn't done in the past. Gal became more and more comfortable writing to her sister and open about her feelings, including her frustration at the constant propaganda and the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. But this was a mistake. She should have realized that her sister was still a fanatic follower of Mao and loved him more than her family. There was probably also a strong element of jealousy, as Gao had written that she was being considered for Communist Party membership, an honor that her sister had not yet achieved. Pei Jen sent letters to Gao's commanders, pointing out her disloyalty and demanding that she be expelled from the army. Luckily, Gao was so well-liked that her commanders contrived an excuse to discharge her due to ill health rather than disloyalty, so she was sent to a city to find a less physically demanding job rather than being exiled to farm labor camps. She got a job in a factory and soon began making friends and becoming popular there. But for her first few years, most time was spent on propaganda meetings and struggle sessions rather than work. The Cultural Revolution was still in progress, and she was forced to observe beatings and even deaths of accused counter-revolutionaries at the factory. Things changed for Gao again when China's relations with the West began to open up, and knowledge of English became an important resource. She had been a good student in school before the Cultural Revolution, and had been lucky enough to be assigned to take English classes back then. She retained enough of the language to impress her co-workers, and her factory sent her to some more advanced English classes. In a few years, she was approved to transfer to a more prestigious job, translating English for foreign contacts, but she ran up against another barrier. I was a worker, not an intellectual, and according to the peculiar system of different areas of work in China, all workers belonged to the labor force department, and all intellectuals were run by the cadre department. Nobody was allowed to cross between the two. At that time, I was a lowly grade 2 worker, and usually it was impossible for a worker to become a cadre unless she or she had a special skill. Therefore, when Mao said the working class was a leading class, he deliberately misled them to keep them happy. In fact, the workers could never occupy leading positions. It became clear that the only way was for me to go through the back door. I contacted Lu Lin, who had once been a friend of our family. Two weeks later, a formal notice of my transfer arrived. The Jiangsu Provincial Personnel Bureau had accepted me at Lu's suggestion because some worker rebels were now employed in government offices. Apparently, it was a new socialist emerging thing, or so it said in the transfer notice. In other words, they had found a way around the rules. Things continued to go well for Gao's career, with her English becoming increasingly important after Mao's death. Deng Xiaoping encouraged new business relationships with the West, and Gao was soon in a position where she was negotiating contracts with foreign business people. Then, in 1985, she was suddenly arrested by the State Security Bureau, or SSB, as a foreign spy. 
They burst into her house, destroying everything they could in their search for evidence, even smashing her TV and typewriter. They were furious when they couldn't find any actual evidence of espionage and ludicrously asserted that her English-language copy of A Tale of Two Cities must be a secret foreign code book, demanding that she show them how to decode the hidden messages. They then hauled her off to jail and put her in a dirty, unfurnished, bug-filled cell with a few other prisoners and a hole in the ground to use as a toilet. It took Gao a while to figure out why she'd been arrested, based on questions asked during the interrogations. Meanwhile, she was constantly threatened, beaten, and pressured to confess with the promise that things would go easy on her if she did. But she was smart not to fall into that trap. Fellow prisoners confirmed to her that a confession would just result in a long sentence. Finally, she realized this had all come about because of a contract she recently negotiated with someone named David Wei in Hong Kong. Her boss had been furious because he had wanted to reserve that contract for a personal friend, but she had told him it was too late as the contract was signed. To punish her, he reported her as spying for this David Wei. But her boss and the SSB had made one critical mistake. While currently residing in Hong Kong and going by the anglicized name David to make things easier there, Wei was actually a Chinese citizen and a full Communist Party member. When the SSB realized that their espionage accusation involved an actual Communist Party member, they realized their mistake. But to save face, they kept Gao in jail for months, pressuring her in regular interrogation meetings to confess to something. Due to the complications of the case, Gao was spared from the torture suffered by other prisoners, though she could sometimes hear their screams. They wanted confessions because most of the cases had no evidence to support the charges. Most were imaginary accusations, so only a confession could be used as proof of guilt. They did this all the time, and every confession proved that their methods of arrest were correct. Many of the prisoners confessed on the threat of being harmed, and often confessed to much more than their original charges. Many of these people were ignorant peasants, and they did not understand what was going on. They believed the interrogators when they promised freedom on confession. In fact, it was stupid to confess to anything that wasn't true. The more crimes they confessed to, the more guilty they appeared. Confession earns lenient treatment was just a trick to get prisoners to provide their own evidence to meet the charges made against them. But to resist was to be branded an anti-party person, which was a great crime and severe punishment naturally followed. In other words, once someone was in here, they had no chance of ever getting out with a clean name. They were guilty, guilty, guilty. Never innocent, because the party is always right. The jailers here have invented a new punishment called a tiger jacket. It's a very heavy thing made of iron, and it looks like the chest part of ancient armor. But it's very small and tight. The jailers first bound the arms of the woman behind her back. Then the tiger jacket was put onto her. They squeezed her upper body into it so that she could not move any part of her torso from the neck down to her hips. It was so tight she could hardly breathe. The minimum time for having the tiger jacket on was 48 hours. If the prisoner complained, the time was prolonged. On the other hand, Gao still had some friends in the party, and the judge of the case actually recognized the injustice here and tried to convince the SSB to just drop it. As it dragged on, the case essentially became a power struggle between the court and the SSB. Eventually, they reached a compromise. Gao would be released from jail, but be given a conviction with a suspended sentence. This would be in her record for the rest of her life, preventing any hope of advancement or better jobs, but she would be allowed to go back to her current job. She was angry at this. Since she was completely innocent, why should her record be corrupted? But she realized that escaping at all from the clutches of the SSB was a minor miracle. Usually there was no hope at all once someone had been arrested like this. Later, the judge tried to explain the situation. You know, of course, our party will always find a scapegoat to take the blame for any mistake. 
The SSB do the same just to save their own faces. They contacted me saying that the image of the party must never be tarnished, therefore Gao and Wang must be sacrificed. He stopped to drink. I regret to say I have knowingly judged innocent people to be guilty in the past simply because it was demanded of me by the party. But your case was so blatantly unfair that I hesitated. I needed time to think. In my heart, I knew it was wrong to convict you. When the SSB tried to bully me into giving a guilty verdict, that made up my mind. I resented their threatening attitude and decided not to do as they demanded. I've seen enough futures destroyed for no good reason. Sometimes I have been involved in making such things happen, and every time I felt very bad afterwards, unable to eat and sleep for days on end. Evil is evil, no matter how justified it can be made to appear. So it was not only you who was on trial, I put myself on trial too. Readjusting to life after release was hard. Despite the sentence officially allowing her to return to her job, her factory no longer wanted her and kept making excuses to prevent her from returning or collecting her salary. She was broke and her young daughter had been taken away. Luckily, the judge took a personal interest in her, giving her some starting money and helping her through the bureaucratic mazes needed to restart her life. Ironically, the SSB now attempted to pressure her into helping them make a case against the judge for revealing secrets of the judicial process in his conversations with her, but she was too smart to fall for any of those tricks. With lots of help from the judge and other friends, Gao managed to get her daughter back, return to work, and start living a normal life again. The autobiography continues after this, eventually reaching a happy ending where Gao marries an Englishman who she met through a personal ad, and through this was able to finally leave China. We need to hear about these things because otherwise we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, yeah, and, and I thought it's especially important to look about look at, at stories about things happening in China because, of course, right now there's a lot of interesting things going on in China with the economy going downhill and the collapse of their major real estate market and things like that. It's going to be scary times, and we really have to remember what kind of government we're dealing with there. Not not like our government. Anytime uh, you have uh, bad economic conditions, any place, it seems like the people at the bottom get it the worst. And somehow the people on top, especially the people in government, they find a way to live a fairly cushy life, no matter how hard it is for everyone else. Well, you know, very interesting story. I actually learned uh, quite a bit about the um, Chinese Revolution. And the idea of, you know, turning everyone into farmers and and just this crazy ideas of how they were going to turn things around and always, you know, making people believe that they're doing all this to help the poor and that they're the ones in charge now when they're really not, you know, <laughs> they're, they're never really in charge, but yeah. they really... They really convince them that, that, you know, this is, and all they have to do is just sacrifice a little bit more. They're almost there, you know, they just, we're not there yet because you're not sacrificing enough, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, and, and they start to believe it. Maybe I'm not, maybe I have to turn in my sister. Maybe I have to turn in my brother and my uncle. And yeah. I, I'm not doing enough. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was the especially scary aspect of the book, the way that the government was turning people's families against each other. And that kind of echoes a theme we saw um, in the last episode where we discussed you know, Nelson uh, Rodriguez Chartron's um, book about Cuba. And there also we talked about how the government 
considered it their duty to separate kids from their families, right? Because they had to make sure everyone was more loyal to the government than their family. Otherwise, the government's great programs might not succeed, right? And mm-hmm. here we saw that happening again, you know, and, and for Anwa Gao, um, it's kind of sad that, you know, just when she was starting to, you know, get closer to her sister again, her sister decided to turn her into the government authorities and nearly got her sent to a slave labor camp. You know, I think luckily enough people understand history here in the U.S. because when they attempted to do this during COVID and start making people's children the property of government, they they rose up at a timely in a timely manner, you know, where it wasn't too far gone. Because if you let it go too far away, then by the time you want to rise, you have no chance. They'll just they'll just take care of you. And that's kind of what this gal that's how she she had to endure so much, but like like she explains in in her memoir, in reality, she had it actually better than many, even though she went through a lot of trouble and and getting in prison and everything else. Others had it even worse than she did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of miraculous, right, that when she went to prison, hers was the one case that the judge looked at and said, no, this isn't right. You know, and it's great that she got out, but she also pointed out that she heard the screams of other prisoners being tortured on a daily basis there. So she was mm-hmm. like the one in, one very rare, lucky case where somehow because two bureaucracies were fighting each other, they mm-hmm. ended up letting her go. Yeah, I think uh, we're seeing a lot of people resistant to giving too much power to government, but this is a... a clear case of when government has has too much power and the people don't they become subjects of the government then they literally up to the mercy of bureaucrats and whoever either likes him or don't like him it appears like this uh lady was fairly likable and smart so that that worked in her favor you know and and she could have been in much deeper, deeper trouble, but she somehow always seemed to manage to come out of bad situations. And that's that that was in part due to luck and in part due to her being smart enough and, and having had some family connections that were tied to government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely her connections helped a lot. And um, I think one other thing to point out is she also was very sort of politically smart in a lot of ways, right? Like she saw which way the winds were blowing. Like when they started mm-hmm. talking about sending students out to the countryside, she realized, okay, she had to do something to get out of that. <laughs> yes. for me, Which was the best option at the time. But yes. I think another thing that's important to point out is we heard, we've heard this euphemism from China multiple times, right? Like after, right after Tiananmen, you might remember that they talked about how they were sending students out to the countryside. And I really think the Western media have been doing everyone sort of a disservice and kind of participating in Chinese propaganda when they use that, you know, preferred Chinese translation of what's happening, right? Because as we saw in the book, when they said they're sending students out to the countryside, what they were doing is sending them to slave labor camps, right, with conditions that are comparable to the Soviet gulags. 
And yet when you use that euphemism, what do people envision? They think, oh, we send the students out to climb on a hill and have a nice picnic and in the sunlight discuss politics. And, you know, that's that's not what's happening. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens now with the uh, new developments that we have been watching with the economic downturn and a big country like that. Last time there was economic trouble, bad things happened. And hopefully this time it's going to be better and things will stabilize and we don't see so many or hear about so many uh, violations of you know people's civil rights and we need to everybody needs to keep their eyes open and and be supportive for for more transparency and more um freedom around the world i think yeah yeah i mean i think in china in particular it's not looking very hopeful right now right with the government have moved having moved in such an authoritarian direction even in comparison to where it was previously and one other thing about this book i think you have to keep in mind is that there's a lot of people who say, you know, oh, when you talk about how bad Chinese communism is, yeah, Mao killed a lot of people, but then they got better after that and joined the, you know, joined the uh, Western world. But the truth is that if you, in this book, we saw that, um, of course, Gao suffered like everyone during the various things that happened under Mao, but her arrest and, you know, or being in that prison with all the people that were being tortured, that happened after Mao's death, right, in the 1980s in the time when China was supposedly reforming and joining the Western nations, right? And as we saw a few times, like especially at Tiananmen Square, a lot of that was kind of an illusion, right? China was still as authoritarian as ever in, in a lot of core ways. And right now, again, they've been going more in that direction, have been more and more authoritarian. So we have to keep in mind that, especially when we hear euphemisms from them, like sending students out to the countryside, right? Take a really skeptical view of exactly what that means. There's a lot of scary things that can happen there. One other takeaway I had from the memoir or the story is that in many of the stories that we have been sharing, a lot of them found a way to, one, learn a different language, mm-hmm. and especially English, but a different language, and, and find a way to eventually find a way out of their country. But that learning of a of a different language has really helped them. I have another friend, local friend here in Vancouver, Washington, and he escaped from Vietnam to learn English when he came to study in the U.S. and then went back. Eventually, he was arrested, also accused of being a spy. It did cost him, but at the same time, it did um, open opportunities for him to escape the situation. And eventually uh, got back to the U.S. after a very difficult time and losing part of his family being, being killed, but eventually made it back to our area here and, um, and became very successful. Became the CFO of a very large uh, billion-dollar company. So um, I think there's something to share here that if you have an opportunity to learn a different language, especially another language that can help you get information or have contacts in different areas, seems to be helpful for people who are struggling to get free. 
and she probably ended up moving to England or Hong Kong or do we know? She ended up moving to England. England. The title of her memoir is To the Edge of the Sky, and that sort of Mm -hmm. refers to how on a map England kind of looks like the edge of the sky. Be sure to check out Anwa Gao's memoir, To the Edge of the Sky, if you want to learn more about Gao's story. You can find the book's Amazon link in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. By the way, don't forget that former podcast guest Nelson Rodriguez Chartrand's new memoir of Life Under Cuban Communism, The Revolution of Promises, is now available. Find it on Amazon or use the link at storiesofcommunism.com to order. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.